Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open those Bibles that you brought to Job chapter 14 and John chapter 11. It's a very unique way of studying in this series. I've never done anything like this where you look at one section and then compare it with another section, but that's what we do because that's the theme of this series. Job comes up with the issue, the question, the problem. Jesus will answer Job and we'll find he does that today. So Job 14 and John chapter 11. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we always feel it necessary before we really get into our study of your word, that we talk to you, that we pray, that we get our hearts right before you, settled before you. And so, Father, we simply give you the permission to do any kind of work that needs to be done in our hearts regarding this issue these scriptures. We pray, Father, that we would become humble servants of yours. We become true comforters for those who suffer around us. And we pray for those who don't know you, who could be here this morning, that today would be the day where they would surrender wholeheartedly to the one who wants to give everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Somebody once estimated that If it cost you one cent to travel a thousand miles, that you could go around the whole world for a quarter. You could then go to the moon for $2.38. You could make it to the sun for $930. But for you to get from Earth to the nearest neighboring star, Alpha Centauri, would cost you upwards of $260 million. The point of that author was to show how vast the universe was. But that fascination of leaving earth and traveling to some distant place, it's a fascination that people have had for a long time. If you're into Star Wars or Star Trek, and I usually find that people are on one side or the other, it's that whole same idea. Wouldn't it be great to take an incredible journey and leave earth And see outer space. Well, the Bible promises that we're all going to take the most incredible journey. Death will launch us into eternity. The question is, what's there? That's what Job asks. Job is facing his own mortality. He's questioning immortality. And he's dealing with some deep issues in chapter 14. The big issue is, what happens when I die? Is death All there is, is death the final word? Will there be consciousness? Will there be life after death? Now, people have uh, equally been fascinated with death from ancient times to modern times, but there has been a resurgence of this death fascination in more recent times. There's a whole study developed called thanatology. In fact, you can now get a degree from certain institutions, a postgraduate degree in thanatology. Thanatology is the study of death, named after the Greek god Thanatos, the god of death. 
And thanatology courses would teach you about grieving, uh, how to work through the stages of grief. They would teach you about rituals that people engage in upon the death of a loved one. They would teach you the attitudes of different people around the world and different psychological makeups as people face death. And you could get a degree in thanatology. But that fascination, though it is in the academic world, is part of everybody's life. We all know we're going to die. Everybody grows up and looks around and sees enough people around them dying that they realize, that's going to be me one day. But it's one thing to know that. It's another thing to think about that and dwell on that. But think for just a moment. There's a piece of real estate waiting for you six feet underground somewhere on this earth. You'll be there one day, and you'll be there for a long time, at least awaiting the resurrection. Malcolm Muggeridge used to say, I have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth, and the one that's on earth is on a banana peel. I could slip at any moment. Well, now Malcolm Muggeridge is in heaven. The banana peel has slipped. But Job asks the question, what happens when I die? Here's Job's situation. He's lost it all. You know the story. We've spent weeks in it. He lost his health. He lost his status. He lost his property. He lost his children. He lost his relationship with his wife. The greatest fears that people have, Job has lived. He has a few friends that come and they offer support for a week. After the week is over, their grieving is over. They are now in philosopher mode, accusatory mode. And so the book covers basically the conversations between Job and these three friends. In chapter 11, the second of Job's three friends, named Zophar the Naamathite, throws his two cents worth and tells why Job is suffering. So that Job chapter 12, 13, and 14 is Job's response to Zophar the Naamathite. And that's what we're going to hear from. We're going to hear from Job responding back to his friend who's accused him. Now let me warn you. What you're about to read from Job... And his lips are Job at the lowest moment of his life. Job is venting. He's highly emotional. He's speaking what he feels at the moment. And let me just warn you that if you are around people like that in real life, to become an unshockable friend, to get ready for that, to get ready for that gut-wrenching honesty that comes out of suffering people. Uh, None of the responses like, I can't believe you would say such a thing. Well, they just said it. So deal with it. And deal with it tenderly and gently. Job's friends did not do that. There's uh, three principles that we want to look at today. Three points, and each point has a principle attached. We want to look at Job's present condition and the question that comes out of that. We want to then notice God's original intention. We'll discover that's not what God had in mind from the beginning. And finally, Jesus' ultimate solution. Let me just, uh, before we get into the text, kind of sum up a point I, I want to make in all of this. 
If there is no hereafter, then nothing really matters. That's really the logical conclusion. If death ends it all and there's no consciousness after death and there's no life after death, if there is no hereafter, nothing really matters. You might as well become a nihilist. That's the core belief of nihilism. Nothing really matters. There's no greater purpose in life. Nothing matters. Do whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. Have fun because this is all there is. But if there is a hereafter, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters as much as that. Now let's begin in chapter 14, not with the question, but let's go back to the very beginning and look at Job's present condition. Look at just the first verse. Job says, Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Wow, that's melancholy. Here's Job viewing life through this narrow lens of suffering. He looks around and he says, you know what? Life is way too short and packed full of pain. That's how he sees it. He bewails the brevity of life and the finality of death. Life is short. Billy Graham was speaking at a university several years ago. He gave a speech to a student body and then he opened it up for questions and answer. And one student said, "Uh, Dr. Graham, what is the one thing in life that has surprised you the most? Billy Graham immediately turned to him and said, it's brevity. Life is short. Now we all discover that as we grow older. It seems as though life accelerates its pace, right? It's not true. It just seems that way. It's just all all a matter of perspective. You see, when you're two years old and your parents say, well, we'll wait till next year. Goodness, you might as well tell the child you're going to wait for eternity to happen. Because a year is half of that child's life at age two. But when you're 70 years old, a year is a fraction of time, a split second, a 70th of a lifetime. But when a person is suffering, everything is changed and this becomes more profound because the suffering person feels as though they are fading away. They discover that they're withering, weakening. Others are growing stronger around them. Life goes on without them. The activities continue, but they're acutely aware that they're not a part of them. This is often how they feel. Life is short. Death is sure. And it's a struggle. And so that's the principle that we discover, that life can be very disappointing and filled with disillusionment. doesn't have to be, but it can be, and Job sees it that way. Verse 2. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes the day. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant 
But a man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and as a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. I don't know if you caught the comparison in verse 7 especially. I think what Job is saying is, you know, life isn't really fair. Because a tree, you can cut a tree down, it'll grow back up. You can cut it all the way down to its stump and just give it some time and a little bit of water and a boom, a little shoot will come up. Isn't that amazing? You can get a lizard and cut its tail off and in three months it'll grow back. You take an earthworm and cut it in half and the, the saddle part, the part with the head and the vital organs, will bury itself in the ground and grow that other half back. Not so with the human You can't cut a person's head off and have that person grow another one. So he looks around at nature and he says, Boy, are we a vulnerable species. And once it's over for us, it is all over. But there's a little bit of hope in his question. Look at the next two verses. And that's what we'll camp on. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave and you would conceal me until your wrath is past that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Here's the question. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait until my change comes. You hear the hope in his voice. Job hopes that there's life after death. He hopes that death is not the final word. But he asks the question. If a man dies, will he live again? He never gets an answer. The question is posed, but there seems to be no solution. In the rest of the chapter, he lapses downward again into despair. 400 years before Christ, Socrates asked a question that sounds very similar to what we just read Job asked. You may remember that Socrates drank the poison hemlock and lay down to die. And as he was laying on his couch to die, his friends were gathered around him and they looked at the aged philosopher and said, Will we live again? Here's the best Socrates could come up with. I hope so. But no man can ever know. I hope so, but no man can ever know. And here's Job going, If a man dies, will he live again? Both Socrates and Job reveal the widespread ignorance that most people have about death. They just don't know. They'd love to know. They'd love to have a certain kind of certainty. But, well, we don't know. We just have to wait and find out. Nobody's pierced through the veil and come back to tell. We just can't be sure. And I find lots of ignorance regarding death by many people. Sometimes it's a benign ignorance. Sometimes it's more profound. I heard about a man who was reading the obituaries one day and he said, I don't understand how people always seem to die in alphabetical order. (laughs) Well, that's a benign kind of an ignorance. But Job's is much more profound than that. Job's was much, much deeper than that. And let me tell you why this is important. 
Ignorance about death will create an uncertainty about life and a hopelessness about the future. If you don't know what's going to happen after you die, and if you're not ready for that, you will live in a very precarious and uncertain manner. And when death comes in the future, it makes a person very hopeless. Do you remember that little phrase tucked away in 1 Thessalonians as Paul wrote that letter to the church who had lost loved ones to death? And, and, and Paul writes, and he goes, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, lest you sorrow like others who have no hope. Hey, it's okay to grieve, it's okay to sorrow, but I want you to know the truth so that you don't end up hopeless, grieving like those who have no hope. So ignorance about death produces uncertainty about life and hopelessness for the future. Here's a good example. In the 1960s was a guru by the name of Timothy Leary, an LSD, drug guru. He was a philosopher, and he became every young person's cool guru. Well, Timothy Leary was a guy who would often joke about death. And even when he was facing his own death, he would crack jokes and make light of it. But one of his closest friends wrote this. Even though he jokes about death, he is as afraid of dying as any of us. Maybe more so because he really doesn't believe there's anything that comes after this. Ignorance about death produces uncertainty about life and hopelessness for the future. That's Job's condition. That's Job's present condition. There's Job suffering after losing everything and then his buddies heaping guilt on him. And he goes... If a man dies, will he live again? Uh, Let me take you to the second point here. And we're going to go back to verse 5 in just a moment. But we want to consider now God's original intention. You see, Job realizes that my life, your life, our lives are set by God. There are certain boundaries and parameters that we can't get out of. Verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Everybody born has limits. Everybody born is going to face the border of death. Well, they no longer live physically. They die. And that is a limitation that is set and controlled only by God. But here's what you need to know. Something happened to cause this. This was not God's original intention. God did not intend death for His creation. He originally intended life for His creation. He originally intended that we were to live forever. But that was marred by sin. Something drastically happened. There was a father who was at the beach with his children and his four-year-old boy discovered a dead seagull on the beach. And brought his dad and showed his dad, Dad, what happened? And the dad, the best he could come up with was, Well, I guess the seagull died and went to heaven. Well, the little boy was pretty logical and he said, Well, why did God throw him back? (laughs) Something drastically happened to God's plan with this seagull. That's what the little boy thought. Job is suffering and he realizes something drastic has happened This is not God's original design. The limits are now set. 
Here is God's original plan from the beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 2. It says, God fashioned man, chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, God fashioned man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God created man to be a living being, the Bible says, a living being. To live and to live and to live. But, same chapter, God set certain behavioral boundaries. And he said to man, of the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Have at it, Adam. Go for it. Have a great time. Eat anything. Go anywhere. Have a blast. There's just one thing you can't do. Don't touch that tree. Don't go near it. Don't eat it. If you do, you will bring consequences. You will die in that day. And on that day, because man did it, there was an immediate separation between man and his creator spiritually. And there would be eventually a physical separation of the spirit from the body at physical death. Now, when Adam sinned, and there was that death that came on Adam, you might say that Adam acted as the federal head for all of humanity ever since, a constitutional change in our makeup, so that Adam's act brought death not just to Adam, but to everyone. To everyone. That's what Paul says, Romans chapter 5, When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So God's intention originally was eternal life, but now death is the daily reality. In the last 24 hours, 146,000 people have died on earth. In the next 24 hours... Another 146,000 people will die on earth. A hundred every minute. Every minute. It's all around us. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. People are dying everywhere. People are dying who've never died before. Like George Bernard Shaw used to say, the statistics on death are quite impressive. Every one out of one dies. It's gotten everybody so far, with a few exceptions like Enoch or Elijah, those who have been translated into heaven. But it is appointed to every man once to die and after this the judgment. I looked it up in Scripture. The word death, die, died, and dying appear 926 times. You get my point. Humanity, including biblical history, is stained with death was not God's original intention, but it is now the present reality because sin marred the plan. Okay, so what's the solution? If a man dies, will he live again? Death is the reality. What's the solution? John chapter 11 is the solution. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. A very familiar story. Verse 21 of John 11, Jesus is at the funeral of his friend named Lazarus who has died. He gets there, verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Now, if Jesus ever would have put out a top ten album of things that he said, this would be in the top ten. This is one of the greatest promises ever. Look at the next verse. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then here's the question. Do you believe this? Now let me just give you the setting. Jesus was a close friend to this family. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, their brother who had died. He often spent time when he was in Bethany at their house. He lived at their house when he was anywhere around Jerusalem. But now Lazarus has gotten sick. And as soon as he got this sickness, they sent a letter or a courier to Jesus to let him know, your buddy is sick, come quickly. Your friend is sick, come now. The Bible tells us Jesus deliberately waited until Lazarus was dead. And then he showed up. And you can hear the bitter disappointment in her voice. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's the voice of a sufferer. Jesus doesn't rebuke her and go, I can't believe you said that, Martha. You believe in me? How could you? He says, your brother will rise again. But what she is saying is this. This is your fault. You're late, God. You could have stopped this. Can I just tell you, God is never late. He's perfectly on time. You might be early. He is never late. He winds his watch differently than yours. The Bible tells us that God in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. But, and here's the deal with Martha, it is hard to see clearly when your eyes are filled with tears. When you're suffering, when you're in grief, it's hard to see clearly. Now here was the problem. Martha interpreted Jesus' love through her own circumstances. What she should have done is interpreted her circumstances through Jesus' love. But she is skewed now. Her lens is clouded. That's how she views life, much like Job. Well, Jesus shows up, makes this beautiful promise. It's the answer to Job. Job asks, if a man dies, can he live again? And here's Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. But there's a few things that are out of place in this story. Odd. They just don't make perfect sense. Here's three of them. Here's the first one. Tears are out of place. Not their tears. They make sense. You cry when somebody dies. But Jesus cried. His tears seem out of place. Look with me in verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Jesus wept? Jesus is crying? Why? 
Doesn't that seem out of place? He knows, does he not, that in a few minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Don't you think Jesus would show up with a Kleenex box and say, stop crying? You guys, watch this. I'm here now. doesn't say that. It says Jesus wept. Why did he weep? That's the question. I think that Jesus is revealing the heart of God who cares when his people suffer. He's revealing the heart of God. Jesus said, did he not? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Here is the man of sorrows entering into their sorrow. He's weeping. Tender-hearted God we serve. Isaiah the prophet said, in all of their distresses, he too was distressed. The second thing that seems out of place in this story is anger. Did you notice the phrase that Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled back in verse 33? Well, read on, 37. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. That little phrase, groaning in himself, means he was emotionally agitated. It's a very strong word. He was emotionally agitated, intensely shaken by emotion or angered. We would say he was ticked off if we were to use perfect slang. Why? Why was Jesus angry? Jesus is angry at death. Jesus knew this wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to end this way. He knew that death was an intruder. That wasn't God's original intention. And this is wrong. And we all feel that way. When somebody we love dies, we have that instinctive feeling, this is wrong. I've been robbed. This isn't right. The problem is we can't do anything about it. The great news is Jesus can do something about it. And he will do something about it. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life. Jesus is angry at the sin that causes death. Because when a person dies, and they die in their sin, they're eternally separated. You know, there's a myth in America. I just want to touch on it. I've I've touched on it a few times before in the past. But there is a myth that says the only thing you need to do to go to heaven is die. I've been to a lot of different funerals, and I've listened And especially if I know the person in life and I knew that that person wasn't a Christian, never read the Bible, never went to church, really could care less about spiritual things at all, suddenly there's a preacher up there pushing that poor pagan into heaven. Now, if this person never wanted to be with God ever, why would God force that person to be with him forever? But that's the myth. Just die and we'll find somebody to push into heaven. Or just be sincere and very good and do a lot of good works. And if you die, you go to heaven. doesn't work that way. The wages of sin is death spiritually and physically. Jesus was angry at sin that causes death. Here's the third thing that's out of place. Ready? Jesus not only wept, not only is angry at this funeral, but he walks up to the grave itself as if to be right next to it. Now, that seems a little strange. I just want to show you this. 
Verse 38, Jesus, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Now, can I just say you, can't beat the old, you cannot beat the old King James in this verse. If you have one, you know what I'm talking about. By now, Lord, he stinketh. It's just so picturesque. Take away the stone. He stinketh, Lord. Now, why did Jesus make a deal of walking to the tomb? Why couldn't Jesus have been a hundred yards back and gone like this with the stone? And then just said, Lazarus, do it, buddy. Go for it now. He did that before, did he not? Did he not heal at a distance? Did he not just speak a word on some occasions and there was instant healing, though in another location? No, Jesus, in his tears and his anger, walks up to the grave where Lazarus is buried, and there he conquers death by a resurrection. Because one day, that's exactly what he will do to your grave and my grave, wherever that happens to be on this earth. He will conquer death by a physical resurrection that will take place at some time in the future. The reason he can do that is because he went to the cross and conquered sin that separated us from God and enabled life through resurrection. And here is a a preview. Let's call it that, a preview of coming attractions. That's what is happening with Lazarus. So, for the believer, death is not the final word. Jesus Christ is the final word. And he made that point very clear that day. But go back to verse 26 and look at the very last question. He says to those sisters, do you believe this? He didn't just say I'm the resurrection and the life. He didn't just say whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He, he personalized it. Do you believe this? Can I just say, if you believe this this morning... It'll show up in how you live. If you believe this this morning, then the way you face death is not with ignorance, but with eagerness, not in a macabre or morose kind of a way, but the confidence of knowing the future, being confident in the way you live, because there's not the same kind of hopeless grief that comes. Folks, that's why the Bible calls death going to sleep, going to sleep. Paul wrote about those believers who go to sleep in Christ, meaning death. Go back with me to verse 11. Look what Jesus says to his disciples here in this chapter. These things he said, after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I'm going to go wake him up. Now his disciples didn't get it. Kind of went, So they go, well, if he's going to like fall asleep, he'll wake up, you know. So Jesus knew they didn't quite get the analogy he was making. So verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Sleep and death are the same in the Bible. And here's why. It's temporary. It's like taking a nap. You don't have anything to fear of death any more than you do taking a nap. If you take a nap, you'll get up. It's refreshing. Go at it again. Now, when I was a kid and my mom said, you're going to take a nap this afternoon, it was punishment. Do I have to? 
Yep, you need to go take a nap. I don't want to take a nap. Take a nap. But what if I never wake up? Don't worry, you'll wake up. Just take a nap. That's when I was younger. Now, as an adult, if somebody says, you're going to take a nap, really? That's a reward. I have a whole different perspective on nap taking. Well, I hope you get a whole different perspective of death as nap taking. One day, your body will wear out and time for a nap, but it'll be a split second. You'll be instantly your spirit in the presence of God in heaven and your body will be awaiting its resurrection. But you, you have no more to fear of death than taking a nap. So, death isn't the end of the road. It's just the bend in the road. The bend in the road. It's just the twist. It's the doorway that leads you to something Glory. It's graduation day. Erwin Lutzer put out a little booklet called One Minute After You Die. Let me read a little section to you. On this side of the curtain, and only on this side, is death our enemy. Just beyond the curtain, the monster turns out to be our friend. The label, death, is still on the bottle, but the contents are eternal life. Death is our friend because it reminds us that heaven is near. How near? As near as a heartbeat. As near as an auto accident. As near as a stray bullet. As near as a plane crash. If our eyes could see the spirit world, we might find that we are already at its gates. Now, as we're bringing this to a conclusion, you need to know something. The only place you get this perspective that I'm talking about is here. It's only when we view life through the lens of Scripture, in fact, I'll even be more narrow, the lens of the New Testament, that we pierce beyond the veil and see what's happening beyond what we call the real world. I I hear people say, I'm not into that stuff. I live in the real world, man. Well, let me tell you something about the real world. There's a really real world that lasts longer beyond the real world. And you'll never get the right perspective and pierce through that veil and see it unless you view life through the lens of the New Testament. You remember the movie a few years ago, The Matrix? And the whole premise of the movie The Matrix is that all of this visible life is simply a computer-generated virtual reality program. And a few people have pierced beyond the veil and they see the really real world. One of them was the lead character named Neo in the film. Well, toward the beginning of the film, Morpheus holds out two pills in front of Neo, a blue pill and a red pill. And Morpheus says, you take the blue pill, you wake up in your own bed, and you believe whatever you want. You take the red pill... And you stay in Wonderland. In other words, you'll see the really real world. I meet people all the time, every day, throughout the community who have taken the blue pill. They wake up every morning in their own beds. They believe whatever they want, whatever they feel they're into, whatever new philosophy suits them, they'll grab onto that. And they're in the real world. There's a really real world beyond it. And the New Testament gives you that capacity to see it. Job's question shows the uncertainty that people live with and the reason why so many people 
cling so tenaciously to this life. They don't want to lose this life. I want to live just another moment longer. There are three guys that died and went to heaven. They died in a car crash. They were there at orientation day in heaven, and there was Peter, right? He's always the guy in these dumb jokes that's at orientation day. And uh, Peter said to these three buddies, Okay, when you're in your casket at your funeral and your friends and family are gathered around, what is the one thing you want to hear him say? And one man says, Well, I'd like to hear people say that I was a good doctor and I love my family. The second guy said, I'd like to hear him say that I was a, a, a good teacher and I was a great husband. The third guy said, I think I'd like to hear people say, Look, he, he's moving. <laughs> and there's some people who want to cling to this physical life, not knowing what's ahead. Now, I understand the reticence to do that if you're not right with God. But if you're right with God, the moment you pass from here, the day dawns and it's an all new reality. So if I'm ever in a deathbed situation, don't you dare pray me back. If I'm slipping over into eternity and I'm right there, just please, if I come back and I know that your prayers are responsible, I'm going to hunt you down. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain, gain. That's why I always thought reincarnation was such a bummer. I mean, who would want to come back and go through diapers again and high school English again and your first date again? And so once you pass from this life into eternity and you experience that joy that we're all waiting for, it's gain. Not only, Job, will a man live again, Because of a resurrection, he will really begin to live. I don't know if you've experienced that, but the invitation goes out to you today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this study, and we have been confronted and comforted by your truth once again, I pray for those who may not know Jesus Christ personally. And I pray that today would be the day when they would say yes to Jesus. That they would say yes to life. That they would be able, because of a relationship with you, because their sins are forgiven, to face life and death on firm footing. And as we close this service this morning, if you're gathered here and you have never received Jesus personally, now hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying... Have you gone to church before? Are you a religious person? Do you believe in the existence of a being? If you have never personally received Jesus Christ as the payment for your sins, the Savior of your soul and your Lord, or if you made some decision growing up, but you haven't been walking with Jesus, then just right where you're seated, as we're praying right now, would you slip your hand up and You're indicating, pray for me as you close this service, Skip. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus right now. I I love to pray for you. I need to know who I'm praying for. You need to slip that hand up and say, pray for me. And keep it up for just a moment. God bless you, you, you toward the back. I see three of you way in the back. In the back over to my right. Right up toward the middle in the front. On my right again on the side. Right up toward the front here. Again toward the back. In the balcony. 
God bless you. In the family room, I see some of you over there. Maybe you're outside. There's a pastor outside who is watching as well. Father, I pray for everyone who has raised the hand, and I pray that their life would be different after today. Instead of calling you forward this morning, what I'm going to ask you to do is, those of you who raise your hands, is to pray a prayer right where you are. This is you doing business with God right here, right now. And say to Him, Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I pray you'd forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross and that He rose from the dead for me. I know that because Jesus rose, I too can rise again. I turn from my sin. I turn to Jesus as my Savior and as my Master. Write my name in your book of life and fill me with your Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.